hey, thanks for your prayers this week. Uh, the moving trucks got, got in. They uh, split the load up. We don't know why. So, you know, beginning of the week, we had, you know, part of what we needed. Then later in the week, we got the rest of what we needed. That always makes moving interesting. And then in the middle of it, the air conditioning went out. So just to help us feel a little more at home, you know. And, uh, uh, but it all got fixed and sorted out, and, and uh, we're un, un, unpacking and rejoicing together. Uh, so this morning, let me invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel again, chapter 23. And we're, we're nearing the, the conclusion of this study of Matthew's Gospel that began in Advent. And in particular here, we're looking uh, this morning at Matthew 23, and we're going to pick it up in verse 37. Now, this, this passage is a lament. It is positioned, it's a pivot passage, uh, right between two sections on judgment. And what we're looking at in this little, little part of the study that we're in is how Matthew is concerned to show us the heart of Jesus. Again, the Gospels don't tell us about Jesus' height. They don't tell us about his weight. They don't tell us about the color of his hair, the color of his eyes, the set of his jaw. They don't tell us any of those things. They're not trying to describe for us an external appearance because the thing that changes us is an encounter with the internal, the heart of Christ as it is revealed to us because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A lot of times people, it seems to me, think that there's a kind of hidden God behind Christ. Uh, a different God than the one that is revealed in Jesus. We looked last week at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, the one who is, he is humble, lowly of heart, and he comes to, to cleanse by, by stooping to kneel and wash the feet of those who need cleansing. Our Savior is a humble Savior, and he's revealing to us who our God is. And so whenever we encounter this heart, we're discovering who God is. There's not, there's not like a, a mean God. I really do think some people think this. There's a, a mean God over here, and Jesus is kind of saying, um, you know, just, 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 just focus on me, not the mean God over here. All right. That's not at all the biblical revelation. To see Christ is to see God. And to behold him in all of his splendor and beauty. Your God is the crucified God. Your God is the humble foot-washing God. Your God is the healing God. That's who God is. But your God is just and merciful. And in this passage here, in this section of Matthew, we find both judgment and mercy meeting together. So in Matthew 23, the first part, Jesus goes through seven woes that he pronounces on religious leaders who are hypocrites. Seven different woes. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. Now, we're used to the word hypocrite. We say, well, a hypocrite is a, is a person who's making a religious profession but they don't really mean it. But the ancient word, this ancient word that's used in the, in the Bible for a hypocrite, it's a Greek word, it was used of actors on the stage. It's simply an ancient word for an actor. And the way an actor played a part was by wearing a mask. And so the actor would come on the stage with a mask. That's the word that Jesus is using. He's using, he's saying, you religious leaders are corrupt and you are, you are going through life wearing a mask pretending to be something you're not. Woe to you. Jesus never pronounces woe, woe upon the, 
the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes. He doesn't say that. He says, woe to who? To the religious leadership because he comes on the scene as a prophet within the Jewish tradition. Let me just put it to you this way at the outset, and this may seem really obvious, but we forget it sometimes. Jesus, historically speaking, as he comes on the scene, Jesus was not a Christian. You say, well, well, what was he? I said that in a conference one time, and a person on the front row said he was a, he was a Presbyterian. And uh, so I was, I, was, I was in a hurry to correct that. Now, Jesus arrives on the scene. I'm talking about how his contemporaries encountered him as like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, a prophet in the Jewish tradition. And he comes with a message of hope and life, but he also comes with a message that God is bringing idolatry into judgment. He's going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. And so he has these woes. And then at the end of 23, the disciples point out to Jesus all the buildings, the temple, all of the temple complex, and they say, look how beautiful it all is, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, the day is coming in this generation where not one stone will be left on top of another. And so he begins to talk to them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, it'll all happen in one generation. And it did. Biblical generation is 40 years. And 40 years from the time he said those words, the Romans came, they sacked Jerusalem, just like his had happened under Jeremiah when the Babylonians came and did the same thing. It's one of the most terrible, horrible moments in history. Jesus saw it coming and he declared it, but he didn't, listen to this, friends, he didn't want it. He didn't want it. Now, there are some people who, when they hear judgment is coming, kind of, have you encountered this? They kind of lick their chops like God's going to get them. And I can't wait. I want a front row seat when God's going to get them. And that kind of attitude is utterly absent from the heart of God and, of course, then revealed in the heart of Jesus. So between these two, woe to you and not one stone, is this lament. Read it with me. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now that, I'll just stop right there. The, the double-barreled use of the name there, for Hebrew people, that is a sign of affection and compassion and love. Double-barreling the name. You see it in the Old Testament many times. God says, Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. In English, it might better be translated, Moses, my dear Moses. He's getting his attention. He's expressing compassion. In grief, it comes through when David's son Absalom, who was a treacherous son, who hated his father and tried to usurp his throne, when he is discovered dead and David hears this news, he goes, oh, Absalom, Absalom. That's the lamentation. That's what you're hearing here in Jesus, this grief. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then he recounts the history, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these words today. We pray that you would inscribe them in our hearts and reveal Christ to us, not simply so that we know more about him, but so that we come to know him and are transformed to look like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God does not reveal, us, reveal himself to us in the scriptures to impress us with how, how brilliantly like him we are. No, he reveals himself to us in the scriptures to show us how disastrously unlike him we are. And that is part of what happens in salvation. In salvation, not only are our sins forgiven, but God begins a reclamation project which in theology is called sanctification, in which he is transforming our hearts, our attitudes, our thinking, everything, so that more and more the lives we live begin to reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. And whenever we encounter the heart of Jesus, we learn something about ourselves, we learn something about who God is, and we learn something about what Christ did to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to him. We learn something about ourselves, something about human nature. We learn something about who God is, about God's nature. We learn something about what Christ has done to reconcile us to God and begin that reclamation project in our lives. What do we learn about ourselves in this passage? Well, here's the first thing. Here's the first thing we learn about human nature, about ourselves. Human beings have deep within themselves an active resistance to God's will. Deeply embedded in the heart of every human person, including myself, is an active resistance to God. It comes as a result of our fallen condition. Ephesians tells us we were born children of wrath, and we are by nature that way. And then God's grace comes and transforms us. The scriptures say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And while we believe that all things have become new, we still see within us that disposition towards wandering away and towards encountering the will of God that makes us go, I don't know about that. I'm not sure I want to go that direction. Now, before you're a Christian, it's really manifest. That activity that goes against God. Listen to what Jesus said. I wanted to gather you together. Like a mother hen gathers gathers her brood under her wings. I wanted to gather you together. You were unwilling there was an unwillingness of heart. And I, saw it all, I see it all the time, of course, in my own life and, and, and as you're working in discipleship with people or you're working in evangelism. Listen, um, over the years, over the years, I've asked this question. I was sharing this with the congregation last night in the Saturday night service. I've, oh, at least 250 times I know that I have asked in an evangelistic context when somebody begins to raise an an intellectual objection to the Christian faith. It may be rooted in history, it may be rooted in science, it may be rooted in theology, it may be rooted in philosophy, but it's an intellectual obstacle to 
to, their, to, to them having faith in Jesus Christ. And they raise those. And I say, okay, well, well, let me just stop for just a second here. And this is almost inevitably in a university setting. But I'll, I'll say to them something like, okay, let me, let me, let me I respect your question. I want to delve into those questions. I think that's an excellent question. That's an important inquiry. I want to go into it with you. But I want to ask you a question at the outset. As we begin this inquiry together, I want to know this. If I can show you that your intellectual objection has been satisfied and that beyond reasonable doubt, Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he's been raised from the dead and that he is Lord, that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's coming again. If you can be satisfied intellectually that that's true tonight, would you give your life to him? You know how many times I've heard somebody say yes to that question? Zero. Why? Because the issue is not intellectual, the issue is volitional. The issue is the will, that deeply embedded in the human will is a resistance to God in his mercy and his grace. We don't want to do it. And even after you become a Christian, you find the Lord saying, I want you to forgive that person. And you say, no, 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 I like my bitterness. It's so delicious. Lord, I thank you that you forgave them. Leave me out of it. Or the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to begin to tithe. And you say, ah, you're speaking in tongues again, Lord. I can't interpret that. <laughs> the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to go on that particular team of people. Go, with that, go on that mission trip. I want you to be a part of that. And you're like, ah, let's just sing. Oh, what a savior. <laughs> Could we just sing, Lord? Can we just sing? Because there's something down inside of us that when God actually says to us, I want you to do this, you go, I don't know. But here's the thing. You can never say, <laughs> you can never say, no, Lord. I mean, if you say, Lord, you can only say what? Yes. Yes. But there's down deep inside of us this intransigence. And we need to invite the word of God and the grace of God down in us to cleanse us of that aspect of who we are. But we learn something about God and that God is both merciful and just. He's merciful and just. Jesus says, woe to you, religious leaders who are going through life wearing a mask, pretending to be something that you're not. You're utterly corrupt. You shine on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. In Jerusalem, with all of your beautiful buildings, it's all coming down. It's all going to lie in a ruin. Judgment is, is, is certainly coming. But listen, God's judgments are always, always not his first will and are always delayed 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 because God is patient and he longs for people to come to salvation he longs for people to repent listen to what Jesus says I wanted to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings I know it's weird preaching on, on, on Jesus being like a mother on Father's Day but there you go it's just the way it worked out this year he said I'm going to spread my wings over you I want to get the word he uses for gather is synagogue I want to synagogue you I want to bring you together 
That's my will. That's my will. In Isaiah, remember Jesus is really walking in the footsteps here of Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophets whom he, as God, had sent to Israel in a different generation with a very similar message. And God spoke through Isaiah and said, all day long, all day long, I stretch out my arms to an obstinate people, longing for you to come to me all day long. You sang it this morning, oh, what a savior. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are folded in anger. That's not what you sang. The Father's arms are open wide. The Father sees the prodigal at a distance. He runs to him. He goes, ah, he wants him. He runs to him. He showers him with kisses. The Father's arms are open wide. He didn't want judgment. The elder brother wanted judgment. How many of you are glad when the prodigal was coming home, he met the father first and not the elder brother? Because if he'd met that guy first, maybe he'd have gone back. But you see, there are the self-righteous who go, you're going to get what's coming to you. There are even preachers like that. You're going to get what's coming to you. You know what the gospel is? Jesus received what was coming to me and gave me what I did not have coming to me. He gave me his righteousness, and all of the judgment fell upon him. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite, and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance, he warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. That's completely true. He longs, he waits patiently, but judgment is a reality. He does bring it. That's why Jesus said to those religious leaders, it's a stunning verse. A little earlier in Matthew 23, he says, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus wasn't shy about announcing those things. And he said all of these corrupt religious leaders were, were heading directly there because of their deceptive ways towards everybody else. And then he said it's coming on the whole city, but he didn't want it. He didn't want that. Listen to how... Listen to how Moses put it in Exodus 34, 7. The Lord maintains his love to a thousand generations, forgiving wickedness, and visits iniquity to the third generation. A thousand generations of mercy, judgment only to what? The, the third. In other words, when people say the Bible reveals God as just and merciful, that's true. But don't ever, ever get the idea that they are equal. No, no, no. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks be to God for that. Listen, friends, listen, friends. Mercy with God is on a hair trigger release. Judgment has got a safety lock on it. You've got to... Resist and resist and resist and resist. And every time you do resist, your heart gets harder. But you resist and resist and resist, whether as a non-Christian saying no to Christ the Savior or as a Christian saying no to Christ the Lord, I don't want to do your will. And ultimately, God will say, I've got to bring you into a place where you begin to understand 
the outcome of your decision to go against me. Like Pharaoh, your heart gets harder and harder and harder. But that brings us to the nature of Christ's work. God is just, but God is merciful, and he overflows in mercy. He longs for people who smell like the pig pen to come home. You may be sitting there this morning going, you don't understand, Pastor. You don't know who I woke up with this morning. Oh, yeah, I don't, but I know somebody who does. And he says, come to me, and I will never cast you out. Oh, friends, God is a merciful God. That leads us to the nature of Christ's work. We learned something about what Jesus said. I want to, he says in this text, gather you together. I want to synagogue you. And he says to this generation, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to watch that. He says to these people who are facing judgment, that judgment is surely going to come. The city is going to be destroyed. But out of your rejection, your current rejection of me, the day is also going to come when you are going to say at the last day of history what you said to me on the first day of this week. You see, this, this passage is set in Holy Week. It starts with Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem with everybody yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here Jesus says, at the end of history, you're going to say it again. Even though judgment is coming right now, at the end of history, you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you say, well, how can, how can Jesus say that people who right at that moment were rejecting him could also be able to say on the last day, God had mercy on them? Well, it's the mystery of the cross. It's the mystery of the way God works in history. He takes someone who is his servant, his beloved servant, who is rejected and turns the rejection into the salvation of the people who rejected the servant. Now, I'll just remind you of this story. Joseph, beloved son of his father Jacob, treasured son, has a coat of many colors, distinguished from all of his brothers. And his father says, your brothers are out there in a field. Now this is after Joseph said he had a dream. And in his dream, his brothers all bowed down to him. And he shared that dream with his brothers. They were so happy about it. <laughs> we're going to bow down to Joseph. This is great news, they said to one another. No, that's not what they said. So they're out in the field doing their work, and uh, Father Jacob says to his beloved son Joseph in his coat of many colors, go out there to your brothers and check on them. So he goes out, and when they see him coming, they go, here comes that master of dreams, let's kill him. Well, they, they refrained from killing him, but they, as you know, sold him into slavery into Egypt. And they took that robe, and they, they tore it, and they dipped it in blood and brought it back to the father. Mm. Now, let me see if we're starting to hear a, a rhythm. Let me see if we're starting to get a narrative theme here. We've got a beloved son who is sent to his brothers who reject him, and the outcome of his, is his robe dipped in blood and shown before the father. Mm. Are you with me? What does that sound like? That sounds like a preview of a coming attraction. 
That sounds like another story that's going to happen. And so he's sold into slavery where he is falsely accused in Potiphar's house. And he's thrown down into a dungeon. And down in that dungeon, he rises to to run the dungeon. And two of Pharaoh's servants, the cupbearer and the baker, are likewise thrown down into the dungeon. They have dreams. And, and, And Joseph says, well, tell me your dreams. I got this thing with dreams. And so they tell the dreams, and what Joseph interprets comes to pass. He interprets the baker's bread, and he interprets the cupbearer's wine. And after interpreting the bread and the wine, he rises from the dungeon to be at the right hand of the Pharaoh. Does this make, does this sound familiar? After interpreting the bread and the wine, he rises to the right hand, who who tells him, you now, because this famine is coming, I want you to feed the whole world. And so he governs and he feeds the known world. And you know what happens? Back, back in, in Jacob's family, they hear that there's, there's food in Egypt. They go, go over there. He, sends, he says, go over there and, and, and get some food. So they go over there and they show up. And uh, they're presented before Joseph to get some grain. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because he's wearing Egyptian makeup. I mean, he's gone all goth on him, and they don't know what he, they don't know that's Joseph, but he sees them. What's Joseph's heart towards his brothers? Oh, good. Now I can get them. Those mean brothers of mine who rejected me, they hated me, they sold me, put me through all this misery. Now I'm going to get them. Was that his heart? Now, through a whole series of events, don't have time to go into this morning, he begins to weep in front of them. He weeps in front of them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He weeps. And they're kind of like, what's going on? What's with it? And finally he goes, look, look, I'm Joseph. And they all said, oh, man. He's going to kill us. He's going to kill us. And then Joseph looks at him and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring me here to be your savior. Listen to me, friends. In the moment that Jesus was rejected by his generation, he became the savior of the world and the savior of the people who rejected him. And that is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved. It's an amazing, astonishing mystery and miracle. And that is why anyone can be saved because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's judgment came and God's mercy came and mercy triumphed over judgment. John Stott puts it this way, at the cross, the holy love of God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. On the cross, God's mercy and justice were expressed and reconciled, and God's holy love was satisfied. My friends, do not spend one more day of your life resisting the mercy of God. The bad news is judgment is real and judgment will come. But the overwhelmingly good news is this. God, at the cross of Jesus, paid the penalty so that all who believe in him, listen to what Jesus said, pass out of judgment into life. Why? Why would you choose judgment when you, sitting here this morning, can choose mercy. Oh, my friend, 
Jesus says, I want to gather you. I want you to live under the shadow of my wings. I tell you this morning, come to the Savior. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you spread your wings over us, that you call us children, that you call us forgiven, that you call us reconciled, that you do not shame us, but you run towards us in our shame, and you cleanse us and welcome us with your embrace and bring us into your, your embrace and home. And Lord, I pray for all those who labor here today under the weight of shame or guilt or fear, that they would know that judgment is real, but that the judgment that Christ took on the cross has paid the price for the judgment we deserved. And the love he showed on the cross is a love that is directed to our hearts. For you long for us. You long for us. You want to gather us to yourself. I pray for all those who are far off today, to be gathered close to Jesus. Help them, Lord, to lay aside their resistance and to come and follow you. This morning, if you need to put your trust in Christ and follow him, I want to ask you silently, simply to pray this prayer with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for me. I put my trust in you. I lay down my resistance and I bow before you. Cleanse me, heal me, receive me, for I receive you in my heart as my Savior. Lord, all those this morning who have prayed that prayer with me today, whether here or online, I pray that you will be at work in their lives to transform and forgive and renew. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.